Welcome to the Podcast. Before we get on with today's podcast, I just want to say a massive thanks and give a massive shout out to our sponsors that are RuneSilk.com, the Rebeard Care Company and Tenga.co.uk, the Resextoy Company. With both these companies, you can get 10% off your first order or orders by using the code TINBISCUIT at checkout. That's the code TINBISCUIT, capital T, capital B. Use that to check out and you'll get 10% off your first order or orders. Um, today we've got a new guest on, and that is Anne-Marie Waters. Do you want to introduce yourself? Um, yeah, thanks very much for having me on. Uh, my name is Anne-Marie. I am the leader of a political party called For Britain. Um, I have, I don't know what, what, what to, where to go with this, long, long history in controversial politics, let me put it that way. Um, controversial because I have this unusual insistence on telling the truth um, and that's not always popular nowadays so I'm a bit of an enemy to to a lot of people particularly the the extreme left which I'm rather proud of (laughs) well it seems to be everything's the extreme left now I've got banned three times off YouTube I've lost most of my friends and everything especially last year with the BLM protests and I did some videos And also, with me not being vaccinated, I've nearly ousted myself out of everything. Um, you've led an interesting life. I was doing some research, and you was born in yeah. Ireland. Yeah. Then you was an au pair in Germany, went mm. to live in the Netherlands. You've got yeah. a law degree. Yeah. Just sort of tell us about <laughs> that and how you came to form for Britain and what made you form this political party and just go from there? Well, it all started really when I was studying to be a lawyer. Uh, when I was in law school, I, 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 it, it, life does take funny turns sometimes. I was Labour Party. I was an activist in the Labour Party um, for some years, almost a decade, um, and heavily active. I lived in, in South London at the time. And I was doing a law degree and uh, I met a young woman, a very devout a very religious young Muslim woman, and we became good friends. And in seeing her life, um, a lot of the difficulties that she had, she had faced a lot of opposition to her going to university and becoming a lawyer. Um, some of the things she told me about her life, which she told me very matter-of-factly, for example, that her sister had left a violent marriage and was on the run in Scotland. And if her, and this is what she told me, and I quote her, if my brothers find her, they'll kill her. And again, she said this very matter-of-factly. And, and it was several instances of such things got me interested, really. In, because un- until then, I'd thought about Islam as being just like any other religion. Um, but this got me interested in it. At the same time, a person in my class, we were sort of given a project to look at an alternative form of arbitration, alternative legal system, and give a report on it. And this guy had done Sharia law as his alternative. Um, So those two things sort of happened at once. So I started looking at Sharia law out of interest, and I was genuinely shocked by what I found, by its teachings, uh, by its principles. And I was just as shocked, if not more so, to understand that an informal Uh, tribunal system of Sharia law was taking place here in the UK with tens of thousands of people using it 
Um, it is completely, its tenets, its principles were completely unlawful in this country, and yet it was allowed to practice informally, and it still does practice informally. That led me to studying Islam itself, and I've read the Quran, I studied the Quran, I studied the Hadith, which is a sort of record of Muhammad's life, and what I did, you know how I describe this, what I did was look down at the books, study them, study them in depth, look back up again and say to the world around me, have you read this? Does anyone actually know what this says? Have you seen what this religion actually teaches? It's horrifying. It's right in there in the texts. And for doing that, I went from a labour activist, I'd been involved in anti-racism stuff and all the rest of it, just for doing that, just for reading a book and saying the truth about what it said, I immediately became a racist and a fascist. And that has followed me since. If you look at my Wikipedia page, that's what I'm described as. Far right, far right, far right. I've never been far right. Um, I realised a couple of things at that point. I realised that the world, the established order, the main, mainstream politics, for example, isn't interested in the truth. The truth is to be hidden and the messenger to be shot. Um, and I went on from there, really. I, I gave a speech at the Oxford Union. Oh, I, before that, I became involved in an organisation called One Law for All, which was an anti-Sharia organisation. Um, I became its spokeswoman um, rather quickly and get started giving speeches around the country. I toured the universities of this country talking about Sharia law. Um, I then I gave a speech at the Oxford Union entitled Islam is a religion of peace. This house agree, agrees Islam is whatever it is. Of course, I was on the opposing side. Um, and that sort of shot me into, and that speech shot me into infamy that I wasn't expecting. I think it's still one of the most watched speeches ever given at the Oxford Union. And after that, a chap by the name of Tommy Robinson got in touch with me. And we, I mean, we, we aren't close friends, but we, we formed a sort of working alliance. Uh, I left the Labour Party for reasons that are probably obvious by now. I joined UKIP. I was good friends with Lord Pearson of Rannoch. He asked me or persuaded me to join UKIP and stand as a parliamentary candidate for UKIP. I did. I came third. Uh, this was in a London seat. I stood again in the same seat for UKIP a couple of years later and was deselected by the then leader, Paul Nuttall, um, because apparently what I said about Islam made him uncomfortable. Those are his words. So I decided after that that I was going to challenge him for the leadership of UKIP. But it's, as it turns out, he resigned. I then stood in the leadership contest and I came second in that to Henry Bolton, who went on to rather controversially um, have a short, rather controversial leadership. Uh, I left UKIP having seen the campaign that went on inside in the leadership election. A lot of the same smearing. Uh, a lot of the same lying, a lot of the same shutting down of debate. Nobody wanted to debate me. They just wanted to silence me. And I thought, well, I haven't been able to speak in the Labour Party. I haven't been able to speak in UKIP. So I left UKIP and started my own political party. It's, it will be four years old in January. We've already won 
seats, local seats, um, and I we intend to, to win many more. But we are very controversial because of the things I've just described. But I don't back down on any of it because it's all true. Do you think Labour's changed from when you was in it to what Labour stands for now? Because like Labour was sort of for the working class, but now it seems to have gone a bit doolally. A hundred percent. And and part of my experience in Labour was seeing that change. I saw it become antifaized for <laughs> there, there's a new word for you. Um that the you know the extreme left the hold that the hard left has over the country at the moment that bullying mm. um that cancel culture that is is it, it's spread out but it, it starts with, and with the hard left began within the labor party and you could sort of you could see a, people stifling their own opinions within the party you could see conversations getting shut down you could see you could see the cancel culture developing within the Labour Party. And you could see that the extreme left was becoming very dominant within the party, um, as it is in society. And that, that sort of lab- that um, Jeremy Corbyn branch of Labour was becoming very, very powerful. And I wanted nothing to do with it. And I think that it's gone down. I mean, it's some years now since I was in it. But I think it's clearly gone downhill since there. I mean, look at the... Um, authority if you like with which Jeremy Corbyn won the leadership and there's still a huge Corbynite element in the party so it's gone very much off to the extreme far left and that's not something I can have anything to do with I think they're a danger to the country at this point yeah yeah definitely um do you think Tommy Robinson put a slight dampener on what you was going to do being associated with him because he's had a lot of bad press he's been cancelled from everywhere i've read his book um he's not a stupid person no you can tell that by like the way he speaks but do you think that did you any favors so to speak uh in 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 hindsight probably not um but you know i don't i don't want to do to tommy what what everyone else does to him all he's he was telling the truth all this time as well. And that's the problem. You know, I can't, for me, to attack someone because they're telling the truth would go against everything that I believe to be right. Um, if I had the time again, would I... Probably, actually. You know, probably. But in hindsight, it probably didn't do me any favours, no. But actually, one of the worst things, one of the biggest... Um, Attacks on my reputation doesn't involve Tommy Robinson, but Nigel Farage. And Nigel Farage described me and my supporters as racists and Nazis. That has followed me around every day since. So he, it's Farage has done far more damage than Tommy Robinson has. But, yeah, in hindsight, it probably didn't do me any favours. But would I do it again? Probably, actually, because it was at the time it was the right thing to do. Yeah, how like do you feel along with Tommy Robinson and sort of because like didn't you form a group with him? Mm. And sorry, yeah, God. yeah. At the time, I was um, I had a, a website called Sharia Watch, which is still online as far as I'm aware. Uh, and he was going to to come into that with me. We were going to, as part of it, hold a Muhammad cartoon. Um, contest in London. This was around the time 
you might remember Pamela Gellers. Uh, Mohammed Khartoum was attacked in Texas. And <clears throat> we thought that we would uh, make a stand with doing that. But several things happened. Uh, a lot of things happened in Tommy's personal life. People started to back away from the cartoon contest. None of the secular, you know, the so-called free speech organizations or the secular organizations would back us. Um, and in the end, you know, the, the police were at my door every other day at this point. In the end, the venue, the only art gallery we could find who had agreed, knowing what it was, had agreed to do it. Very regrettably from her, from her perspective, as she told me, she regretted it, but... Her insurance company would not allow this. Her neighbours were upset about it, and she pulled out. At that point, we had no choice but to pull the plug on it. So the whole thing sort of fell away. Mm. Um, we did uh, start a Pegida group as well, um, myself, Tommy, and Paul Weston. I'll tell you, this feels like a long time ago. <laughs> um, but some things just don't work out. You know, you, you in, in political activism... You try new things, and, and some of them work out, some of them don't. It is just the nature of things. Um, that didn't particularly take off um, for various reasons, and it's just one of those things. And, and, and I, you know, I've never fallen out with Tommy at any point, but we've sort of drifted apart over the years, yeah. You, you like mentioned the police was at your door sort of, mm. sort of every other day. Yeah. Why was the police involved in that? Was it due to complaints from other people? Was it due to the adding inkling of what was going on? Did well, they were, yeah, I mean, they were worried about the reaction, the possible reaction to holding a Muhammad cartoons contest in the centre of London. They were worried about what would happen. I mean, we wanted to have Geert Wilders there. He had said he would come. That added an extra element of danger from their perspective to it. So they were very worried about nothing. Essentially, they were trying to persuade us to cancel it. Um, and that's not the only thing. The police have tried to persuade us to cancel over the, over the years. But it became very, very, very difficult and very, very dangerous. And, and one thing I would mention is that the media, when we were planning this, the media didn't want to know. You had the, the odd article here and there. As soon as it was cancelled... The media were all over it. So they wanted to show a failure, but never an attempt, never wanted to talk to us about freedom of speech. When we cancelled it, I was immediately contacted by the BBC and brought into the BBC's main you know, weekend flagship shows. And what. They didn't want to know when we were planning it. They didn't want to know the reasons behind it. But as soon as it was cancelled, then they wanted to know. They liked to show this to the public, but they don't like to show the efforts being made in the first place. Well, I mean, the BBC did a hatchet job on Tommy Robinson anyway with their panorama. They certainly did. And yeah. he and he caught them out there. Um, I was speaking to Mike, I don't know if you've heard the podcast, but I mentioned it because I looked at um, the website for For Britain and it's mentioned it as a far-right organisation. Mm. How, like, sort of, how do you feel when y you're personally... Um, accused of being far-right, because far-right's a word now that can mm. be classed as conspiracy theorist. If you mention Donald Trump, it's far-right. Mm. If you don't believe in COVID, you're far-right. Do like, yeah. you think the term far-right is used more than an insult than actually what it stands for? Oh, 100%. It's anyone who won't go along with the mainstream narrative. Any questions at all? And actually, you know, people are starting to see this now. This is more and more people are being targeted by this now. So, for example, when I um, uh, pointed out who 
was the grooming gang. It's when the grooming gang, <coughs> you're going to have to excuse me, I've got a terrible um, throat cough thing. I've had it for weeks. Uh, when I pointed out the religious makeup of the grooming gangs, when the grooming gang scandal started to break, a lot of so-called feminists targeted, you know, called me a racist and all the rest of it. Even, you know, I was speaking up for raped girls. They called me a racist and a fascist and all the rest of it. A lot of those same feminists are now getting the same treatment if they oppose the trans uh, agenda. Mm. And a lot of the people who are now speaking out about COVID, for example, and the to call it overreach is something of an understatement, are getting the same treatment. You know, if you go against the mainstream narrative, which is actually the left wing narrative, which is one and the same thing at this point, they're going to call you far right. It's an umbrella term now for anyone who won't go along with the left wing narrative. And people I've seen people uh, on the on my side of the, the trans debate being called, you know, they're on the same side as the far right. Therefore, they are far right. So. I'm against um, the trans women are women mantra. So are a lot of feminists. So those feminists, ergo, are far right because they're on the same side as me. This is happening quite a lot. I've seen even The Spectator. I saw an apparently conservative publication, The Spectator, um, talking about protests in Europe against uh, lockdown and, and COVID restrictions. And heavily implying that there's an element of fascism among the um, protesters. We, the Independent uh, went to the bother of telling us that someone was flying a Nazi flag at protests in Austria. You know what they're trying to do there. So they're trying to portray anyone who is against COVID restrictions as being fascist, Nazi, far right. So it's become an umbrella description now for anyone at all who doesn't go along with the mainstream narrative. And a lot of people who used to throw stones are now getting stones thrown at them. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the trans debate um, because I have, it, her name's gone now, but um, the lady you wrote, Harry Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling, yeah. J.K. Rowling, that's it, thank you very much. Um, she's got a lot of sticks. She's had death yeah. threats sent like, yeah. to a house. Um, just because, I mean, I... I can't remember what comment she actually made, but I don't think it was that inflammatory or I don't think it was that bad, but she's got a lot of stick from it. Yeah. Um, I think there was a story about her publishers, people was threatening to work out and leave if they still had mm. the books. Her books are being cancelled. I mean, what's going on? <laughs> it, I mean, it just looks like we're walking into clown world. Yeah, I, we're walking into something very, very dark. Um. If you, again, if you if you won't go along with the agenda set down by the hard the extreme left, then you will be what George Orwell described as unpersoned. You will be attacked. Your reputation attacked, threatened. No one who took. I mean, J.K. Rowling is a major, major world figure. No one in mainstream politics, for example, stood up for her, even though. She had been very mild in her comments. She hadn't um, advocated any removal of rights from trans people or any, certainly any violence against trans people or anything of the kind. Um, the, the threats she received and receives regularly are a criminal offence, actually. 
and nothing at all is done about it. So it's not only that it's, you know, it's, the, it's not just the little people who get into trouble and nobody cares. Major figures like J.K. Rowling are subject to criminal threats. And the state, the police, or the, the politicians, nobody takes her side. Nobody stands up and says, this is shocking behavior. This should not be happening. Um, so even when you, well, I think the point is, even when you're a big celebrity like her, you're still not safe you're still not able to express yourself without being subjected to threats, threats which remain unpunished. No matter who you are, how famous you happen to be, you can still be subject to this. So we are living in a world, the Western world, the UK and the United States particularly, which is essentially governed by far-left violent mobs. The political establishment in both the US and the UK are bowing down without exception on every issue that the far left, violent far left mobs are pushing and demanding obedience to. The entire political establishment, Labour and Tory, are both bowing down to these demands, the demands of these far left mobs. And this trans thing is, it's almost too much to take. It really is. I mean, you. You have, you, you, you can, if you say a woman doesn't have a penis, you are stating a biological fact that has been a biological fact since human beings have existed. And now you can be accused of hate speech and bigotry and subjected to all the horrors that J.K. Rowling has been subjected to. And the state will not be on your side. It will be on the side of the bullies. We have mm. the extraordinary scenario where the leader of the Labour Party was asked, is it wrong to say that women, only women have a cervix? And he said, yes, it is wrong. This is insanity. This is, we, have li we have gone into insanity now. Of course only women have a cervix. It is the part of the body between the vagina and the uterus. And only females have it because only females have a vagina and a uterus. And we have the leader of the Labour Party saying that that's not true. Emily Thornberry said that it was a statement, uh, it, was, it was factually, no, to quote her directly, factually incorrect to state that only women have a cervix. Where are we? What, we have gone down some serious rabbit hole here. And I think it's, you know, the, the left, the extreme left, always wants to cause confusion and chaos because it wants to dismantle society and build its utopia upon the rubble. Now, if you're going to dismantle society, a good way of going about it is to dismantle language and truth and objectivity. And this trans thing has just, it's a gift to them. And they are, it has worked so, so well for them that we are so confused now. People are so confused now that they no longer know what a woman is, what a man is, what a penis is, what a vagina is. Um, we have children being taught in schools that they, there are a hundred genders. Uh, they can pick one. You don't have to be male. You don't have to be female. <laughs> We've got kids in schools being taught <laughs> fetishes at this point. Um, fetishes dressed up as an identity. Look, I don't care if people have a fetish. That's their own business. Um, but it shouldn't be in children's classrooms. It shouldn't be out in public at all, quite frankly. And certainly shouldn't be in children's classrooms. But that's the level of disruption and chaos 
that the left is is managing to cause um, across society, particularly across the Western world, but particularly in um, the UK, the US, and Australia for that matter. I don't think it's as strong in continental Europe, um, but uh, it, that's the level of chaos and disruption and confusion that they're inflicting upon us. And the state and the opposition parties, in fact, the, the government, I should say, and the opposition parties and the state um, are all on the side of the left. And the reason being is that they are terrified of upsetting them. I mean, you mentioned the cervix and the vagina mm-hmm. issue with the like, the women. Um, I, I, I rarely heard anyone mention about the prostate with them like the man and where trans women still have to have their prostate checked. Right. <laughs> so well, it's... Look, it, it is starting to come around. I think initially, but only initially, women have been sort of the main, the main victims of this. I mean, if you look at sport, for example, um, men are, are entering women's sports, identifying as women and entering women's sports. And naturally enough, because some of them are twice the size of women, um, will be breaking, you know, winning everything and, and breaking all sorts of records and what have you. So they're destroying women's sports. The opposite's not going to happen. Um, you know, a woman identifying as a man is not going to go in and, and, and start destroying men's sports. Um, but if you look at the, at the medical journals, for example, you might remember the Lancet, uh, this quite, quite prestigious medical journal, um, described women as um, bodies with vaginas. And in the very same publication spoke about men's prostates. The word men was used, but for women it was body with, with vagina. But uh, that's it, that it'll it'll come for everyone. This as well, it will come for everyone. Uh, you can see it particularly on you know things like I don't know if you know the, the LGB alliance, the sort of gay breakaway from LGBT, um, and 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 this pressure on lesbian women to date, date trans women, and now vice versa. And everything is just everything is they they they're bullying everyone and my issue with this you know the people who called me racist and fascist a lot of them are now getting the same treatment but it's coming for all of us eventually it'll come for everyone unless you are content to forever be told what you may think what you may say even if it defies your own values even if it defies what you see with your own eyes unless you are content with that it's coming for you as well Definitely. What's what's your party's view on um, free speech, freedom of expression, thing, like sort of things like that? I, I mean, I probably can guess, but yeah, just from you, sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we've we've lost free speech. We lost it. We started to lose it under Tony Blair. Um, our policies are first of all, we would do away with any um, concept. We would do away with hate crime. Um, this is the concept of hate crime sort of to uh, to add an aggravating factor onto a crime and make it a hate crime is a very cultural marxist um hierarchical thing to do it separates us from equal citizens into a hierarchy so if one person is attacked and it's perceived say if a black person is attacked and the attack is perceived as racist doesn't have to be racist it just has to be perceived as racist even by not even by the victim but by some busybody bystander then it becomes an aggravated offense and the sentence and the punishment 
is more severe. So what that does is say that it's more wrong to attack a black person than a white person. This separates us. This creates a hierarchy of importance. We are no longer equal citizens. So we would get rid of all hate crimes and make us all equal. But any hate speech, if you look at the racial and religious, uh, I don't know exactly what the bill, the act is called now. I should do, because I've written about it enough times, but it escapes me <laughs> at the moment. But these, um, you know, causing alarm or distress um, uh, to to uh, use, communicate in, a, to, to, for, in writing or in video, for example, in a way that causes alarm or distress or which is perceived to be an, a denigration of a particular racial group or a particular religious group. All of that needs to go. All of it. All of these laws need to be scrapped immediately. We must be able to say whatever we like, with the exception being direct incitement to violence. Now, incitement to violence has been, has been illegal for a long, long time. This is not a modern-day woke um, notion. And it should remain illegal, but we also need to clearly define what we mean by inciting violence. For example, to respond with violence to a criticism or a analysis does not, there, does not equate to incitement to violence. I'll explain that a little bit more. So if I draw a Muhammad cartoon and a mob of violent Muslims decide to react to that cartoon with violence, you don't then label, in retrospect, the cartoon incitement to violence. You must be clearly actually using words that call for violence. And something that we've done, actually, is just that, just what I've described. People, in, in the wake of, there are many, Muhammad cartoon controversies that led to violence, a lot of people, in the wake of that violence, blamed the cartoons and said that because the reaction was violent, the cartoon was incitement to violence. That's just not the case. A cartoon cannot incite violence. Words must directly call for violence. Objective language must, object, must uh, explicitly call for violence in order to be, meet the definition of incitement to violence. That needs to be very, very clear. But that's the only infringement on freedom of speech that I would support um, through legislation. What do you think constitutes hate, like hate speech? And then we get into the realms of who decides what hate speech is. Well, hate is an emotion. And in trying to control hate, we're trying to control emotions. And we're into, again, we're into 1984 territory there. I have the right to hate whatever and whoever I like. The repercussions of that may, I may have personal repercussions for that. It may not be very healthy for me in a, mentally or emotionally to hate, but it's my prerogative. If I want to hate, I can hate. I can hate music. I can hate films. I can hate religions. I can hate people. If I want to, it is my prerogative. The state has no uh, business trying to regulate my emotions, even if they're negative for the most part they'll be negative for me someone who uh, is filled with negative uh, emotions and, and thoughts is not going to have a very happy life but it's not the state's business to regulate what I hate and don't hate all they need all they must do is protect people from any physical ex uh, expression I suppose for want of a better word of that so I can hate if I want to if I go out and try to hurt the people I hate 
that's where the state intervenes. But how I feel about things is no business of the state. So the whole concept of hate in the way that it's being legislated about and the way it's portrayed in the media is an, is, is an attempt to control us, to control our very emotions and thoughts. It is no, the state has no business telling us whether or not we can hate. That's our problem. But and if I go out and try to harm people, if I hate them, that's when the state can intervene because that is an infringement upon their rights. I think it's the best way I can summarise what I think about that. Yeah, because like, what one sees as hate speech, someone else will not see as hate speech. So well, you've you've like got that line because like I've got a pretty wild sense of humour. I've right. take a lot of things. <laughs> this is why I've got the podcast. It's free speech. It's all unedited. I believe everyone should have the say. Um, I'm not really offended by speech, though it does piss me off sometimes. But yeah, same. But like I like wouldn't go crying to the police or someone else about it. But what justifies hate speech to one person might not be hate speech to the other. And who makes that judgment on what that right. speech actually is? Absolutely. And offence is the same. I mean, like you just said, you're offended sometimes. I'm offended sometimes. And if, if there's a person who is, a, you know, who's in my life in whatever form, and if that person continually offends me, I'll just stop spending time around that person. I'm not going to go to the police and say that I'm offended by this person. It's, what kind of crybaby behaviour is this? You know, we all need to grow up a little bit. If you don't like, if someone offends you, stay away from them. That's all you have to do. But as again, like with, with, with uh, what you say about hate speech, offence is entirely subjective. What is offensive to one person will not be to another. So if we were to outlaw everything that was offensive, we would outlaw everything because everything is offensive to someone of course that's that's not what the aim is here that's not what's being sought here what this does much like hate crime is create a hierarchy it doesn't matter for example if i'm offended nobody cares if i'm offended but if a hijabi wearing muslim trans black lives matter type is offended then then there's a big deal what they do what that does as well is separate us and create a hierarchy of offense it doesn't matter if I'm offended. It does matter if a transgendered, you, you, you get, you know, someone who's in the, in the clique, in the mm. approval of the left wing. If they're offended, then it matters. If I'm offended, it doesn't. So they're more important than me. So again, we're segregating society into a hierarchy of importance. I'm at the very, very bottom of the ladder. I'm not even on the ladder, in fact. I've been, I've been squashed under the leg of the ladder, of the ladder at this point. And, and that we have to. Speaking of segregation, what's your personal view and what's your party's view on COVID? Have you had the vaccine? You don't have to answer that question. And what's your view on lockdowns? Because today they've had a vote, haven't they? And vaccine yeah. passports have passed in England. So yeah. that's another segregation, which I feel yeah. will be pushed towards. I mean, I haven't had the vaccination. I'm not going to have a vaccination. I'm very wary even if covid does actually exist properly i don't agree in lockdowns but i feel there's a major segregation coming the young vaccs are getting pushed and i can see it soon where the four like ireland north scotland wales england will all come to a point where 
the unvaxxed won't be allowed to go into pubs or restaurants, <laughs> it, and it'll just be hospitals, doctors, and supermarkets, and that'd be it. Yeah. Um, I am not vaccinated. I will not be vaccinated. I do. There are people close to me who are vaccinated. Um, but in many respects, I'm very lucky. So my my other half is not vaccinated. My immediate family, my mother, my siblings are not vaccinated and feel the same way as me. So I don't have this issue close to home, if you like. I know this is dividing families. It's tearing friendships apart, tearing families apart. It is very, very sad. Uh, and you're right, there is a an absolute separation of the almost the clean and the unclean um the unvaccinated you you know we may as well be ringing a bell at this point and warning <laughs> people of our presence um there was of course as you mentioned a uh, a bill passed in parliament today to what will be covid passports either doing the usual duplicitous lie of i think what did what did that floppy haired moron boris johnson what did he call them covid certificates um yeah we see you johnson we see you um but it wouldn't you know what's interesting to me it wouldn't have passed without labor a hundred tory mps rebelled he would not have got that through the commons without the labor party what kind of mess is this we have we are effectively in a one-party state Labour has not objected to any of the draconian, pointless, destructive, completely without benefit to anyone, lockdowns and restrictions that have been placed upon us. Uh, Lockdown, we don't know and probably won't because the press and the state are one and the same thing. We are not going to be told how many people died because of lockdown. We are not going to be told the ongoing and continuing um, problems caused to millions of people by lockdown, like destroyed businesses, for example. Um, we're not going to be given that. We're not going to be told either how many people died or are still dying because the NHS did nothing except COVID for a long time. There's so many things wrong with with this with this issue. So many things. One. There are doctors and scientists who, from the beginning, have said this thing can be treated easily with already available cheap medications. They were shut down. Some of them were sacked, even had their websites taken down. That's the first alarm bell should have been ringing right there. Massive red flags going up all over the place. Uh, Quite aptly, actually, red flags. Um, (laughs) No debate around vaccination. You can see this still occurring. It's like being, I I liken it to, I liken where we are now to living in a science fiction film. That's what it feels like to me. We know that the vaccinations don't work. Even the rotten government and the rotten so-called opposition admits that it doesn't stop transmission and it doesn't stop hospitalization. So what is the point of it exactly? They don't even try to give us a point. And when you watch Mr. Floppy uh, do his press conferences, the press act as if it's a given that the vaccines work. 
no one in the mainstream press stands up at one of these events, these press events that he holds on a regular basis, and says, Prime Minister, there are more vaccinated people in hospital with this thing than unvaccinated. Can you explain, therefore, why you are looking to put COVID passports in place? It doesn't stop transmission. You admit that yourself. So exactly what good will it do to the transmission of this virus introducing COVID passports? No one says that. They're all acting as if it's a fact, it's a given that these vaccines work. It is like be, it, it's like watching a bad science fiction film where the truth is sitting over here uh, and everyone is looking in the opposite direction and, and pretending that truth isn't there. It's absolutely bizarre and frankly frightening to watch what's happening now. And it's appalling but unsurprising that it took Labour to get that bill through the Commons today. Um, and shame on them all, but, I mean, Labour shamed itself a long time ago. But I, I don't, is there a virus? I've known a couple of people who have had it. Um, they recovered from it. It is, to me, a repackaging of a bad flu yeah. in order to dismantle our freedoms in a way that is absolutely unprecedented since the Second World War. And those, a lot of, a lot of those um, restrictions were quite reasonable, or, or at least warranted um but now we're in a completely different era and the relationship between the citizen and the state has been altered beyond all recognition we are in and i think this is the main purpose of the lockdowns and the uh they're letting us out for a while take a mask off put your mask on is to create that relationship of obedience and at an infantilization of the citizens of this country who are now behaving like children who are putting almost putting their hand up and saying please sir may i go out today sir um at waiting to be told by politicians of all people whether or not they can celebrate christmas with their families and being grateful for the opportunity to pop down to the pub or pop out to the restaurant for dinner we have been so infantilized by this that we are seeking permission from the state to carry out basic daily tasks. That was the aim of this, and it has been achieved. We are children now waiting for permission from the state to do simple, basic, everyday things. Job done. But, like, what's there in... I mean, my personal view is that it's a precursor to the mark of the beast. But what's from your personal view on the end game? of it what's some like the government going to gain from this because like i've been saying from like i think my first podcast was march the 11th last year and i thought it was going to be some sort of beta test for like sort of something else they was going to bring out but now more and more the vaccine passports all the mm. countries across the world seem to be running off the yeah. same script um you won't yeah. be able to Literally. go anywhere without these vaccines and yeah. people can't see this but i just want to know what their end game is personally i honestly think it's like mark of the beast like sort of book of revelation but coming from your side yeah um global governance Mm. um complete and total submission of and and it, it was always about attacking the western countries and there's a huge um a global and and very dark and but very present and very visible 
anti-white sentiment across the world. And Western countries are, have massive high levels of migration from outside the West. This is, if you are going to have global government and you're going to create a surf class to, you're going to keep, an elite at the top is going to keep all the power and all the wealth and they're going to create a surf obedient class underneath them on a global scale. You're going to have to take down the richest and freest people first. And that's why the West is under such sustained attack from the global elites. So you've got globalist bodies like the WHO, the United Nations, um, the World Economic Forum. These are all the same, the same people, actually, in, in many instances. Um, they want control. They want global control. And they want to take away our rights and our freedoms and turn us into a serf class. That's, that's ultimately, to my mind, what is going on here. Um, and COVID is, if you, want, if you want to take people's rights and freedoms away, you make them afraid. And one amazing way to do that is with a virus. And a virus is a magnificent gift to tyrants because, A, it's invisible. Um, B, people don't, most people don't understand the um, medical, scientific aspects of it. So they wait to be told by experts who are all on the payroll of the globalists. Um, and beautifully, it can travel around the world. So it's not restricted to one country. COVID achieved all of those things and took away everyone's rights at the same time. It's not a coincidence, of course, that all the governments, as you rightly say, are all literally speaking from the same cheek. I mean, they're using the same phraseology. You know, build back better, great reset. This is, they're all doing the same things at the same time. That tells me, because I have a morsel of common sense, that someone is telling them, someone is directing this, and I believe it is the globalist World Economic Forum, World Health Organization, United Nations, and other big powerful players like Bill Gates and, and other, other big uh, uber-wealthy players in all of this. Clearly, someone is calling the shots. Clearly, someone is telling the governments what to do. They don't coincidentally do everything the same way at the same time. So there is a global elite um, seeking to create a surf class of obedient um, slaves and uh, they are doing a bloody good job of it if I may say so and um, but the, the problem is of course that I actually on that climate change is another perfect example of this climate change is global which of course it has to be because it has to be the whole world at once it can't be confined to one country it is uh, something that most people don't understand. So there's some, you know, uh, complicated science. People are led to believe this is very complicated in science and you're going to have to listen to the experts. Um, and you're the problem. So your freedom is the problem. So COVID and climate change have this in common as well as being global and having a scientific basis to it that most people don't understand. They can persuade you that you're the problem. So your freedom is the problem here. Our freedoms are spreading COVID. Our freedoms are causing climate change. They go hand in hand. And I see climate change as an extension of COVID. And we will see more and more of that. We will see our freedoms restricted in the name of climate change, exactly as, as we have with COVID. In fact, you're already seeing it. You know, your carbon footprint. Uh, you're taking too many holidays. You need to get rid of that car 
um, you know, you know your, the boiler in your house is all wrong. You need to change that boiler. Your freedom is the problem. So climate change and COVID are two very, very, very similar things. They're confusing, they're global, and they're caused by our freedoms. And in order to save the world, you have to restrict our freedoms. Now, this is all nonsense. Climate change thing is nonsense as well. Anyone with half a brain should realize that carbon dioxide, yes, we may have increased the levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but the most basic of research, and I'm no scientist, but I know how to read, and, and basic research will show you that CO2 levels in the past have been much higher than they are now, that CO2 is a source of plant life, of course, a, a source of life because a source of plant life, without which nothing else would grow on this planet. You know, we, are, we have told the world that carbon dioxide is some sort of noxious poison. People are terrified of it. But also, if you look back, I mean, I was born in the 70s, and I remember being a child in the 80s, and in those days, it was the ozone layer, and you had to not use uh, certain kinds of sprays, and you had to turn off the light because electricity was, you were killing the world if you left the light on. Um, then you had, they keep changing the name as well. So it was, it was ozone layer problem, then it was global warming, now it's climate change. They keep shifting the goalposts on all of it. They're coming for our freedoms, they're coming for our rights, and they're using these things as an excuse. And climate change will go on a lot longer than COVID, I suspect. They're coming for our cars. We won't, I won't, I mean, I have a car, I drive where I like, it's a, it's a petrol car. I drive where I like in it, as long as I keep it topped up in petrol and pay my insurance and tax, I'm pretty much free with it. They're going to be replaced by ridiculous cars, which won't, you won't, will only go so much of a distance before you have to recharge them. And again, with an ounce of common sense, these how did we go from switch the light off, you're killing the planet, to electric cars? Where's the electricity coming from to run that car? Uh, you know, the, the whole thing is such an obvious scam. And it is designed, designed to take our freedoms away from us. We are the problem. Our freedoms are the problem. So they're going to take them off us. I mean... There's another problem with electric cars on where do the lithium comes from, like the batteries mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and like the old mining scenario Absolutely. with like with that. Um, you was mentioned about the freedoms. Where do you think we will be this time next year? And where do you think the unvaccinated will be this time next oh year? God. Um, I'm a natural optimist. So even in the darkest things, I like to find a silver lining. So I'll tell you where I think we'll be, and I'll, I'll, I'll say where, where I think the silver lining might be. Um, certainly, with the Labour Party's disgusting compliance, then the Tories will continue to push through restrictions on our freedoms. So I expect that we will have all-out um, COVID passports very soon. The unvaccinated will be denied access to anything but food essentially um a hardcore will continue to resist that hardcore and here's my silver lining that hardcore will get together and organize itself um and i hope a political pushback will begin to take place this might lead for example to the formation of new political groups to challenge the status quo 
in the uh, on the political stage. That is my hope. Um, but I think with a lot of people, I mean, they're going to ramp it up. They're certainly going to ramp it up. But for a lot of people, for myself included, now when this started, I didn't. I never wanted to get the vaccine. But one thing that I did think at the time was I really do want to travel. And you know, it's not it's not about going to to um, Benidorm every year as people. You know, so a there's nothing wrong with going to Benidorm every year, and b uh, there's more out there than Benidorm. And I, you know, I would like to see a little bit of the world. So that was a big big one for me. I do want to travel. Um, so that was a little bit of oh, I really. But the more they pushed this, the more I wasn't. I knew I wasn't going to have it. Um, the more they wanted me to have it, the more I knew I wasn't going to. And and I think that will happen. People re- will stiffen their resolve to this. Those who are unvaccinated, some will give in and 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 get the vaccine. Others will become more and more um, determined not to have it. And I hope that those determined not to get it will come together, uh, collect, form some sort of collective political movement against the current regime. Um, that's the silver line, the hopeful. That's my very, very most optimistic silver lining in all this. But yes, I do see that they are going to ramp it up. By by this time next year, I expect that you and I will be barely able to go out and buy food. I mean, I've already come to the consensus that I won't be travelling again. So I thought I've got five years or four years left on my passport. One idea I've had is we'll cut it up and send it back to Boris Johnson with a letter. Mm. But um, I don't know how legal destroying your passport is. Well, I'm not <laughs> sure myself, actually. To, like, sort of, to be fair... There is one question that I would like to ask you before we go because it's it's and it's been a brilliant podcast. But you have got one famous um, supporter, and that's Morrissey. Oh yes, yeah. And how did that come about? I I you know he he surprised me as well. Um, he appeared on some American talk show and he was wearing the badge that we give out when people join the party. And we only give this to members. So when you join, you get a sort of little welcome thingy and one of these little badges. And he was wearing that badge on this show. And that was the first we knew of it. Um, and he, we, he's been, yeah, I mean, it, it got worldwide press coverage because of it. So it couldn't have done us a bigger favour. Um, but yeah, he spoke a couple of interviews. He, he spoke about us in interviews. And uh, I think I think one of the big things that attracted him to us was animal welfare. Um, we have a very comprehensive um, policy um, package on protection of animals. Um, I'm very serious about it. I I'm, I'm very, feel very, very, very strongly about animal welfare. And a lot of our members, a lot of people have come to us because there's no comparison. No party in the country touches us when it comes to animal welfare. So we've got a lot of support from people who, for whom that is a major issue, uh, including him. So, yeah, he put us, he put us, uh, I mean, we got lots of donations, lots of support, lots of members just from that. And I'll always be, always be grateful to him for it. Yeah, it's great. Haven't you actually met him before? Or? I haven't, no, I haven't. I'd love to. 
I'd love to. You never um, say he's, never. He's quite a quiet character anyway. I think he keeps himself to himself. He certainly, um, yeah. He certainly does. I was reading an interview he gave. I think it was the in the NME, and he and I think he mentioned you mm. about it, saying how intelligent you like sort of came across and sort of like sort of things like that. Um. So if people wanted to find out more about your party, um, where can where can they go? <coughs> Sorry, for Britain.uk. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would urge people to go to forbritain.uk and not to Wikipedia. Um, I, I, people think I'm joking when I say this, but it's actually true. Our Wikipedia page is written by Hope Not Hate. Might I, I, say I'm that, not yeah. Joking, yeah. Absolutely, 100%. Um, we know this. So, you know, you, Wikipedia is absolute tripe. Wikipedia is simply more mainstream media. To know what we actually stand for, go to forbritain.uk or the For Britain channel on YouTube, and listen to what we say and not what is said about us. And I think, you know, for anyone who is fair-minded, interested in truth, and interested in doing their own research, it's time to take your head out of the the, the mainstream media, whatever it may be, BBC or the Daily Mail or Wikipedia. It's all much the same thing. Go to the source and listen to what we have to say rather than what anyone says about us. And if you agree with us, join. Um, you may, I think, you know, you know, a lot of, I think millions of people in this country would agree with the vast majority of what we have to say. We are not extremists. We are fair-minded, decent people. Uh, we just are tired of being run by self-interested, incompetent, and and in many, especially where Labour is concerned, anti-British, anti-this country, anti-us. It's time we had a political representation that actually gives a damn about the people of this country. And I can tell you that our party is made up of the people of this country. If you don't, you don't join a party like this that is smeared and demonised if you don't really believe in what you're doing. I would urge people to go to our website as a starting point, forbritain.uk. Read what we have to say. If you don't like it, fine. Shut down the website and go about your business. If you do like it, join us. I will put that in the description. And I just want to say thank you very much. Thank you. Again. And um, anyone's welcome on this podcast. As I say, it's all free speech and it's all unedited. And that's most important because you get to hear things from the horse's mouth. And so far... The podcast hasn't been banned from anywhere, except for YouTube, but <laughs> who wants YouTube anyway? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, you you take care. You um, too, thanks very much. Lovely talking to you. You too, thank you. Take care. All right, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye